Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people in the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton, and today's a really different episode that I think you're going to like. Now, every week it's really a challenge to get together an interview and prepare for it and send them the information up front, all the things you need to do to make it happen. And this week I had two cancellations of guests, so I didn't have anything prepared for this Saturday, but I kind of did. A long time ago, maybe about a year ago, I was listening to a podcast about genetic engineering, or more precisely, a podcast about the dangers of GMOs. It's a relatively popular podcast. I thought that it was a good example for us to dissect point by point for the following reasons. I thought that we could look at the misinformation and how bad information is spread through these pipelines to their willing audiences. How bad information stays within the silo to further erode confidence in good technology. Now, I didn't air this originally because I didn't want it to sound mean-spirited. I didn't want to sound like a jerk who was just ripping up a podcast, you know, because they were wrong about everything. (laughs) Um, I I didn't like the way it came off, but I listened to it again, and I kind of like it. It, It's not mean. It's not intended to be a personal attack on the host or the guests or anything like that. It is a conceptual attack on bad information because I want you to see how the folks within this silo insulate and, and, and agree with each other about complete nonsense instead of challenging each other. And you'll hear this, uh, this uh, straightaway agreement without any uh, confrontation or any disagreement. And, and, And it's all, Just false information, one after another. I do a little soliloquy here in the beginning, a little monologue to kick it off. And so I hope you bear through that. But the basic idea is, is that it is a good example of how false information is presented, given an audience, and allowed to spread unchallenged. There also is a lot of weird little technical glitches that occur, little pops and weirdnesses that were in this episode that made me not want to air something that wasn't audio perfect. But uh, please bear with that and keep in mind that some of this was recorded at different times. So it's a little bit different, a little bit rough around the edges, but I think proves the point. So thank you for listening as always. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I I think it's really different and kind of fun. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to be talking about an honest conversation. 
and why in the discussion of food and farming it is so hard to be had. And I'm going to have a little bit of a criticism of some other media. Now I've done over 200 episodes, million downloads, and <laughs> as you listen, I think you can hear that I take the precision of the information very seriously. And I ask questions. I ask questions about risk as well as benefits, downsides as well as upsides. The bottom line is, is that we need to have an honest conversation about technology if we're going to advance technology, especially to those who need it. And we need to do it with an eye for sustainability, environmental, social, and economic sustainability. So when a trusted organization publishes a podcast that's complete nonsense, I feel like I have to respond. And it's an organization that I appreciate. I, I like what they do. I just don't like what they did. <laughs> I'm a proponent of organic farming. I really am. I love that farmers can get a premium for their products. I, I love that and appreciate that small farms can work. I appreciate that others are working on ways to grow food with different inputs that may be more readily available in some parts of the world. And I'm glad to see people passionately trying to work against the elements of nature herself in order to grow food. And that becomes really important later as you'll hear this whole nature thing. Now when I was a department chair, I was glad to fund organic research. I introduced our students to opportunities in that space. And I even donated departmental dollars to a local conference. It's an easy calculus for me because these are people dedicated to producing food and, you know, as you know, my mantra is all tools on the table. Conventional farming has learned from organic production. And organic production learns from more conventional farming. So it's all good. Now, I don't agree with the arbitrary organic rules, the ones that are politically based, such as the flat-out, dead-on-arrival ban on genetically engineered crops. They'd be perfect for organic production. I mean, something that makes the BT that they have to add you know, that, that seems like a no-brainer. That would be very much a benefit to those farmers. And there's many that agree with me. I'm also disappointed in the organic industry's vilification of synthetic chemistry and genetic engineering. It's strange that massive amounts of natural chemicals are fine and free of impact for a few ounces per acre of a specific compound targeting a specific pest are somehow deadly and wrong. Now again, you know, GE crops, they're a precise extension of plant genetic improvement, and time has shown great benefit to risk, you know, relatively, and that real risks like weed and insect resistance are ultimately manageable. The biggest disappointment with the organic industry and its supporters is their willingness to not have an honest conversation. And you can interpret that any way you like. Today we'll listen to a podcast that is directed to those interested in organic farming and food. Um, I'm omitting their names and titles and that kind of thing because this isn't a personal issue. It's not me against them at all. Um, if anything, I would like to better connect with them. Now, After I heard this podcast, I reached out to the host and the organization that produces it. And I wrote to them three times, three different emails, uh, three different email addresses, uh, very kind. You know, I said, you know, like what you guys do, you know, love this, but you're, you've got a lot of mistakes in this podcast. And I suggested that it would be of interest to have an honest conversation where we could discuss the content of those podcasts. I didn't even get the courtesy of a response. 
And that's because the misinformation bubble can't tolerate questions from informed people like me. So folks who know these topics inside and out and have committed a lifetime of study to them. You know, I violate the, the integrity of their ideology and their bubble. It's classic religion, right? I mean, 101. So what you'll hear today is my dissection of their claims one by one in real time. Now, are they deliberately lying? Probably not. I, I, I know a lot of folks in this organization and they all have the best intentions. I, I really believe that. But what you do hear is motivated Dunning-Kruger in action. These are people who think they know more than they really do. Okay, they're experts that really don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, it, it is the, the ultimate of confidence versus competence. I, I'm not very confident, not very competent. And that's a horrible combination when you give them a microphone and others who are willing to nod without any uh, reflection or any challenge and support this and then give the listener an idea that they are coming from a place of authority. So uh, it's also interesting to note that the folks that are in this conversation are identified as industry experts. Now think about that for a second. If you had a podcast with industry experts talking about the benefits of conventional farming, the anti-whatever would be all over it, saying you can't believe any of it. It's all industry interest. But here, you have industry experts spreading misinformation to produce fear, uncertainty, and doubt that benefits their industry. Now, if that's not Page Shill 101, I don't know what is. I mean, these are folks who use a trusted conduit to spread false information information that benefits them directly financially and in terms of social license these are the heroes right <laughs> the valiant warriors for the consumer fighting corporate greed to advance the acceptance of a different way to produce food right and then and, and of course you know there's no nothing in it for them <laughs> and here's the problem there's no question that there are good applications for genetic engineering and ask any diabetic or people who are alive today because of genetically engineered T-cell therapies. Ask the farmers that produce corn, cotton, sugar beets, canola, papayas. There is a place for the technology. And its penetrance has been limited by high regulatory barriers and entrenched ideological positions. Maybe that has no palpable effect in the USA or EU, but it does hurt the developing world because confidence in the technology is being eroded by misinformation. Now the problem with misinformation or disinformation, which are two different things, is that it's being broadcast here as fact. It's flat out false information riding the halo of a social movement, a religion. It seeks to manipulate public sentiment towards food. Now again, I reached out to these folks and offered to talk to them about the topic, but unfortunately they never even contacted me. So we'll have the conversation here. Understanding that they're more likely to have the best of intentions, but they don't know enough about the topic to have a simple, honest conversation. The echo chamber of ignorance is a powerful thing. So as you listen, notice a few things. First, the, the authority by which they speak and deliver false information. Also, the appeals to nature. The appeals to create fear of technology. Listen to the blind acceptance of completely wacky ideas without challenge 
and how they reinforce each other inside that echo chamber of false information. And keep in mind that they're spreading false information that favorably affects their organization, its social per perception, and the associated companies. This positively affects a bottom line. One of the major speakers in this is a CEO that uh, continually alludes to corporate greed, right? Um, what's worse than providing blatantly false information that benefits your company? Ironically, that's what they accuse Big Ag of doing all the time. They do it wonderfully here. So if you have subscribed to organic agriculture ideology without question, shouldn't you really ask hard questions? Is this a good thing that they misinform and don't wish to even engage potential correction? Why do you trust them? And maybe not trust me, you know, a host who uh, talks about topics of biotechnology. And this is the real question, who do you trust? And of course, they're always more than welcome to discuss things with me here on the podcast. I'm happy to do that. All I'm looking for is an honest conversation. It is these reinforced echo chambers, false authorities, motivated misinformation, and recalcitrance to an outside perspective that does not allow an honest conversation to take place. It's because the real evidence, the real science, it might challenge some of their deeply held beliefs. Now don't misinterpret my intent here. It's not to throw them under the bus or make them look bad. That wasn't it at all. It's doing what a friend should do correct you when you're making a horrible mistake. I believe in what they do and I really do believe in their intentions. I think they want to do the right thing. I, I appreciate their passions and how they want to try to take on a topic as important as food and, and do it in a different way. I'm good with it. But if they're going to have any credibility and traction in what they do, they need to stop making up false information. I do this because I appreciate their values and passions. I hate that they misinform people in an attempt to bolster those values and passions. So here we go. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Welcome to your favorite weekly podcast that delivers a healthy dose of information pertaining to healthy lifestyles, organic and sustainable agriculture, and numerous topics related to the environment. Thanks for tuning in. Our industry experts are here to provide you with a fresh take on topics that can help you optimize your lifestyle and well-being. Welcome, guest. On today's episode, we'll be discussing genetically modified organisms and the controversy surrounding them. I have a wonderful pan panel with me today. I have the CEO of I have who is the board president of and I have who is also uh, with the company. He is the CEO of Thank you. We're so pleased to have you. Um, as an industry expert on genetically modified organisms, can you give us a rundown on, number one, what are they, and why is there so much controversy surrounding them? I can probably talk about why some of these issues are really a concerns to many consumers. Um, let me try to simplify things so people can understand. 
when a person gets bitten by a snake, spider, causes reactions. So it, it actually, when they bite, they, the venom is injected into their bloodstream. So what is the venom? Venom is basically, in simplified terms, is, is basically something, a protein particle, a foreign protein particle from a snake getting into your systems. Right. And people get killed because two things happen at the point. One, it triggers a reaction. The toxins or the protein particles from the venom in the venom is causing problem. The second one is reaction produced to those protein particles by your body, causing sometimes death if it is not treated at the right time. GMOs, in many ways, is very similar. And there's the first offering from this industry expert. An expert who apparently knows more about this topic than anybody they can get. He says that this technology that brings genetically engineered organisms, such as those that provide uh, insulin for diabetics, maybe uh, crops that have produced uh, their own protection, that this stuff is the same thing as snake venom. Okay, let's move on. Okay. You have a foreign protein, foreign DNA, foreign RNA that has been inserted to a vector, and then now it is being, in your, you're consuming those products. Your body is bound to make some reaction to those external particles. Sometimes it could be dramatic. In some cases it could be dramatic. But sometimes it takes a long period of time to express those reactions, your body's reaction to those foreign particles. To so, really have an effect. To really have an effect. The guest fails to realize that everything you eat has DNA and has proteins. That you don't eat sterile food. That the genes that are in genetically engineered crops are really just genes from other places in the environment. Even the antibiotic resistance genes, the BT gene, the uh, EPSPS gene that confers resistance to the herbicide glyphosate. All of these are natural genes and proteins in our environment. So he seems to go with this idea of the natural fallacy, that if it's not something that nature put there, it must be poison. And you'll hear this over and over again throughout today's analysis. Okay, here we go on. The challenge, though, is the absence of independent study. Okay. Um, there is, because biotech companies control the source materials, not anybody, any independent researchers cannot do the research. In fact, it is prohibited. So any published material that's out there is either funded by these biotech companies okay. or the research has been done by themselves, making it very difficult for an average consumer to know whether this product is safe or not. So in the absence of a really peer-reviewed independent research, you have to rely on logic and you have to rely on common sense. Absolutely. Well, obviously, the guest doesn't do a whole lot of reading of the peer-reviewed literature because at least 50%, probably more, is independent research done on these products and on these technologies. In fact, all you have to do is fill out an academic research agreement and you can get the seeds that you want. It's really no big deal. I've done it. Um, we were able to receive seeds for a project in a few weeks. But it's this age-old trope that the seeds are somehow forbidden to be analyzed. Heck, if I had a hunch that something was wrong with them, I would do what farmers do. Buy the seeds. Just buy them. Fill out the forms. Say that you're not going to use them in any kind of research capacity and 
do the essential research. It takes some guts, but you do it because if you learned that something was truly wrong, you, you would be implored to publish it and blow the lid off it and get the Nobel Prize and the cover of science and grants for the rest of your life. This whole idea that you can't do independent research is completely, completely false. And notice how the uh, podcast host just nods along. Oh, yes, that's right. This is how you reinforce the edges of a religious basis to false beliefs. You're taking information that's incorrect and making it seem as though this is the acceptable norm. This is how they fool you and manipulate your thinking. So if you go with that logic, it is very easy to explain. Um, and, and if you go with the logic and common sense, we can understand and say, hey, very similar to the, the protein of snake bite I explained, it is bound to cause a reaction. So GMOs is meant to cause some reaction in the body. That's the first part. So let me get this straight. So because snakes have venom, when you genetically engineer a crop, it makes it poisonous. This is a, an expert who's saying use logic, who's saying use common sense. But logic and common sense have absolutely no application and no gravity if you don't even have a handle on the crudest of evidence. Yet these are the experts. This is a podcast guest on an influential podcast who's shaping public opinion. This is a major problem. Let's continue. Then the second part I can also use is some other example that we can talk about is antibiotic resistance. I don't know if you remember, Jessica, when I used to be young, I even the doctors prescribed antibiotics. And the antibiotics are used to be 250 milligrams right. for three right. days. Now, recently I was prescribed an antibiotic for a specific condition. It was 1,000 milligrams for 10 days. Yes. What happened? What the, the, the thing that happened there is the, the evolution of superbugs mm -hmm. is the time that an antibiotic resistance bacteria. Well, he is partially right there, that there is an increased incidence of antibiotic resistance that comes about because of inappropriate use of antibiotics. And that by his physician, increasing the dosage from 250 to 1,000 milligrams isn't a function of the antibiotic resistance as much as it is for him not to create antibiotic-resistant microbes. And that a long course of high dosage is, is really what's in store for most people who are on a regimen of antibiotics at this time. The idea is to not create the antibiotic-resistant microbes. So, how does he feel those came about, I wonder? Right. So, why I'm, I'm mentioning here is because now there is a recent potato variety that has been approved to be GMO potato variety that has been approved. Okay. That potato variety is resistance to antibiotics. So, when you start consuming this potato, given this common sense, given this logic, that is going to develop, eventually going to come up with something that is going to be resistance to antibiotic in our systems. Plus, you know, tying the two, on one hand, you have an antibiotic resistance particles that's been in your system and your body's going to react over time. Plus, you're also going to develop, you, your body is going to come up with more antibiotic. In other words, you will end up needing more antibiotic dosage eventually down the road. Because you're going to develop a resistance. Right. So to those antibiotics levels. Right. So like I said, from 250 milligrams I consumed Yang to now to 1,000 milligrams, that's a Wow. And the number of days antibiotic is given as grown. 
So let's talk about potatoes. The potato that he's discussing was made by J.R. Simplot Company several years ago, and it browns less, meaning that there's fewer calls, which means 25% higher yields for farmers that use it. And that's great because it helps us save resources, such as water, fertilizer, all the things that are required to grow potatoes. 25% more use, that's sustainability. The other thing is that it has a gene which limits the production of a precursor for a chemical called acrylamide. All potatoes, whether conventional, organic, whatever, will produce acrylamide upon frying, and it is a class 1 carcinogen. And although the levels are low, it's one of these things that is present and is a risk factor. So the potato takes away risk from food and gives better environmental sustainability. Antibiotic resistance is present because you have to be able to select for the resistant potatoes in the laboratory. So you use a cassette, meaning a little piece of DNA, which has a gene which encodes resistance to certain antibiotics. And these are typically canamycin, hygromycin, like old school antibiotics that aren't used in human therapies, at least not very prevalently. Furthermore, so first of all, you're not going to get bacteria, you're not going to get antibiotic resistance from eating the gene for antibiotic resistance. Just like you don't grow cow horns because you eat beef or because you don't grow leaves because you're you know, not a plant. That's, so that's not an issue. The other part is, where does he think the antibiotic resistance genes come from? Do scientists make these up in a lab? No, they come from bacteria. Bacteria we're exposed to just about every day. Bacteria have remarkable ways of competing against the, the world that's trying to kill them. And one of the ways they do this is to have enzymes that inactivate specific classes of antibiotics. And for geeks out there, you can have beta-lactamases, which cleave things like ampicillin or penicillin or aminoglycosides, so other um, enzymes that target aminoglycosides like canamycin and hygromycin, the ones that are really used primarily in, in uh, genetic engineering. So neomyosin phosphotransferase is one of the enzymes which breaks down these antibiotics. And they come from nature, not from the lab. We only use them as a tool to be able to differentiate tissue which contains the genes that we're interested in. It allows those plants to grow. He finishes up again saying that his dosage has been higher and that's good because his physician is giving him a correct course of how you take antibiotics correctly in a way to limit antibiotic resistance. Okay, let's go on. So that's the first concern that, in, that impact that GMOs can, can have on humans. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think that the example that you gave with the snake is a very simplistic way to understand how it can affect us. Yeah, and I, I think the key point in, in my um, opinion is that it takes a long time to have any evidence. Unlike a snake, it's immediate. GMO, that's why I think it's a little bit harder to um, sort of have that conversation in a very scientific way is because... You know, it doesn't express itself in an immediate way. So you can't really assign cause. Maybe you got sick because of multiple reasons, and you can't really pinpoint the reason. 
That is correct. So let me get this straight. This stuff is exactly like snake venom, except for it's not because you don't see the results right away where you do with snake venom, meaning that it's not like snake venom at all, which is true. It's not. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's actually has nothing to do with snake venom. This is what is a, is a manifestation of our lack of teaching critical thinking and analysis. And when you get people in a room with a common goal and a common tribe, okay, a common group that share a given set of ideas, that they'll agree with things that are completely insane and even internally contradictory because it reinforces the group feeling. And this is something called cultural cognition. And it's a great example of this kind of psychology in action. Here somebody says something that's completely counter to what the main thesis of the other speaker said, yet everybody buys in and agrees. They also doesn't have anything scientifically to do with the topic at hand. They present no evidence and it just moves the goalpost. It says, well, we just can't know what the effects are because they're just too long term. So we can't know. So unlike that snake bite, they're saying it's a snake bite that kills you 50 years down the road. The other part is the absence of independent study. First part is the time it takes to express itself. It is, bent, it is meant to cause, anytime you put a foreign body into your systems, your system would react, whether it is, you know, just a simple injury in your hand, the platelets has to be produced to be able to, the WBC, white blood cell, has to be produced. There's always a reaction to something that's happened in the body. So when you put a foreign particle, it takes a long time, number one, uh, to understand the impact. But the, that is also an absence of independent study to say, this is what exactly it's happening. Oh, the Dunning-Kruger effect in action. I can't believe what I'm listening to. He says that when you put a foreign body into your body, that you have to have some sort of reaction. Now, if he thinks about what he's saying, you're consuming plant DNA and a plant and some sort of protein, right? In most cases with genetically engineered plants, it's an, a version of a bacterial enzyme called uh, 3-enolpyruvalshikimolphosphate synthase, EPSPS, or um, the gene for delta endotoxin, which makes the BT protein, the one used in organic cultivation and production. So he says that by putting the food in, by, by introducing this to your body, you're, you're, you're absolutely going to have a reaction. Now, does he eat food? Does he eat sterile food? Every, every bite you eat has bacteria that contain that same enzyme. Every plant you eat has, every plant bite of plant, plant biology you eat has that same enzyme. The BT gene is ubiquitous. You, you, you always are consuming this as well. But moreover, every plant has thousands of different genes and proteins that, that you don't ever, <laughs> that if they were dangerous, if by eating foreign particles, as he says, it's dangerous, we wouldn't be able to survive. And you can sense the frustration I'm having here. Again, it's just people who are not experts, who actually have no idea. They're actually anti-experts. And they're spreading gospel to their trusted community to influence that community. And then potentially, as we see, 
influence policy change, and influence social license to use technology. They are outright spreading false information. And, you know, we always say colloquially stupid or lying, right? Is this somebody who just is ignorant of the facts or is it someone who knows the facts and is deliberately saying something incorrect? I'm going to go with the former and give them the benefit of the doubt. They just don't know. Okay, here we go. And I think based on this logic, it's, it's more like, you know, the reaction might not be the direct impact on that foreign objects, I mean, or, or the, the particles or the, the things that we eat. It might be kind of a trigger channeling effect. So it's kind of like allergic reactions, right? Exactly. That's true. So, yeah. And then it might trigger something else instead of that, but then you'll never be able to trace it back it may be more of the scientific study and things like that. So, And now we witness the age-old tactic of moving the goalpost and an argument from ignorance. Okay, these are two more logical fallacies. Is that we, we can't identify any problem, you know, with evidence. So it's probably there, we just don't see it yet. And we probably don't know enough about what it is in order to identify it. And of course, everyone agrees. Onward. My personal experience is I feel like nowadays the kids are getting more allergic reactions. They're allergic to eggs, they're allergic to milk, they're allergic to a lot of different foods nowadays. And, and, and you know, obviously it's hard to tell if it's GMO or if it's something else. That's but the point. It's hard to identify that as the cause. So are we getting more to the point where we are identifying it? more easily and we didn't know all these people are allergic to it or are we developing allergies or you know this this is a, a conversation which is a bit more difficult to answer I believe yeah the absence of independent studies making it harder yeah. for us to evaluate the impact of GMO but if you just strictly use the common sense logic we can come to a conclusion which is what we have to do in the absence of independent peer-reviewed studies use common sense and logic and if you use that we will come to a conclusions the impact GMA might have on our health and on, our, on human beings. Ouch, this is really starting to make my brain hurt. Yes, allergies have been increasing over the last several decades, but the leading hypothesis is something called the hygiene hypothesis. The fact that we live in environments that are too clean and fail to give us immune challenge early in life. And that the, the system is made to respond, it wants to respond. So when we give a lack of challenges to an immune system, with too much Purell and all that stuff, um, it seems as though that could be a, a contributor to this particular issue. And while still being a hypothesis, it is the leading hypothesis uh, at the time. He also goes back to there are no independent studies. And again, there are lots of independent studies, but you have to look at them. And experts should look at them. And so here's another example of someone claiming to be an expert who hasn't even examined the literature to be able to make a statement saying there are no, in, there's no independent research. And of course, everybody else agrees and says, you know, and reinforces his false position. Let's go back. I would like to talk a little bit more mm -hmm. on the, not just human beings, but other impacts GMO has on mm -hmm. animals. Mm -hmm. Yes. Other impacts the GMO has on the social economic impact it has, has. Other impact it has on environmental concerns um, and the moral and ethical concerns. So if you look in the totality, mm -hmm. I believe 
GMO is meant to cause some issues overall, the humans, the environment that we live with, and the animals that lives in the air. Wow. I agree with you. I can't even buzz this one. He said, and listen to it again if you like, that, that genetic engineering is meant to cause harm to people, to animals, and to the environment and earth. It is meant to cause it. So now he's, he's instilling the intent of the scientist onto the use of genetic engineering. So the people like me who try to come up with ways to solve problems in plant disease, increase plant output, um, all of the work that's been done in, in chemotherapy to save lives at work, uh, the, uh, the, the creation of genetic engineering in microbes to cure diabetes. Um, now it's happening in sickle cell anemia. This is all evil, see? This is all evil work being done by bad scientists who wish to harm other people. That's what, what he's saying. Now, this is the important point, is that when you say, make such statements and you malign a good technology, and listen to everybody agreeing, oh, yes, that's right, uh-huh, yeah, I agree. You now are slowing the capacity of that technology to reach the people it's meant to serve in two ways. Either you slow the regulatory process that, you know, now people have to go through or, you know, if you want to commercialize a product, has to go through additional layers of regulation because of the social pushback. And two, it stops people from using it. Just like the anti-vax people uh, get people to fear vaccines. Here you're getting people to fear food and medicine because it was genetically engineered. So now they're limiting the choices of people, the choices of the poorest people in the world, and they all agree it's because this is evil technology being um, created by companies, right? Okay, here we go again. Um, can you touch on each of those a little bit individually sure. so our listeners can understand that while we've touched a little bit on the effects that it can have on humans, but can you go a little bit into depth, further into depth on how it affects animals and just our environment? Sure. Well, I'll go with animals first. Thank you. Um, most people may be familiar, last couple of years, there's been a serious beehive disorder. Numerous bees, millions yeah. and billions of bees died. Mm -hmm. Well... There may be several reasons. One of the reasons is use of certain pesticides. What does that mean? It's the, the increase in use of pesticides. So why it's related to GMO? The increase in use of pesticides because we now have varieties. We now have crops, like for example, crops like corn and cotton, right. where those crops are resistant to genetically modified to be resistant to certain pests. Right. So what they end up being is you suppress one pest but it creating an ecological imbalance, so number one. At the same time, you're also increasing the amount of pesticides that has been applied because of using a variety that is genetically modified in a particular plot or in a particular crop. So that has been estimated, that has been increased because of pesticide use because of GMO crops is up to 318 million pounds wow. of pesticides increased. So when you Incredible. increase that much amount of the pesticide, it has to have a serious impact on beneficial insects such as bees, such as right. monarch butterflies, such as the dragonflies. Right. So it impacts indirectly because of increased pesticide use. Using GMO crop increases in pesticide use and then that results in creating an ecological totally imbalance, nice. causing some things like the beehive disorder or a collapse of beehives. And as you know, without bees, we can't 
live because pollination is very critical to some zombies. So that's the... It's essential. It's essential. So that's the second concerns uh, that we have with animals impacting GMOs, affecting animals. The sound you have heard is probably my head hitting the desk. <laughs> so what are the effects of genetically engineered crops on animals? Well, it's bees. This is major as his first one. And if that's the first thing he wants to use, let's talk about that. First of all, um, I mean, this is insane. First of all, the pesticide that's used inside GE crops like corn or um, uh, or cotton is the same one they use on organic farms. It's BT. It's it's not a pesticide. It is a pesticide, but it's not sprayed on. It's um, created by the plant, and it's a protein that only affects the plants or the organisms that feed on that plant. Now they'll say, well, maybe the pollen or whatever nectar, you know, that, that can come from a plant, and they, that's a potential discussion. And people have looked at that. And it turns out bees really don't visit corn very much. And also the BT protein is not toxic outside of its targets. So outside of lepidopterans or butterflies and moths. So is this hurting butterflies? Well, it's been shown that at field levels and realistic doses that it doesn't necessarily affect the adults as much as it affects the larval stages, which are the ones that cause the damage to crops. So the other question is, are pesticides increasing? And he's, he's looking at numbers that have been pushed by folks like Ben Brook and others who say, okay, the raw amount of pesticides is increasing. But pesticides, the pests are weeds, fungus, microbes, and insects. So when you say the pounds of uh, pesticide are increasing, they're also taking into consideration herbicides. So herbicide use has increased. Glyphosate use is way up. And that's because the trait works so well in no-till farming. It allows farmers to farm more sustainably, saving soil, stopping runoff. So yes, the number of pesticides in total is up. But the number of insecticides, the amount of insecticide use is way, 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 way down on corn and cotton and other BT-traded uh, crops. And if you look at this, and these numbers are in the National Academies of Science report from 2010 and 2016, they show that in corn and in soy, I think it's figures 2, 3, and 2, 7, show that um, the, the amount of insecticide applied is down by somewhere between 50 to 90%, depending on the crop, the insect pressure, and where you live. The other contention he makes is that you throw things into ecological imbalance, which farming does automatically. You remove the crops and the plants that belong and replace them with large cultures of plants that do not belong, that came from another part of the world. And we offset that balance so that we can eat. If there is a downside to genetic engineering, is that it works too well. And that farmers have had some ecological impact because you take away prairies and fence lines and things to plant them with more GE crops. It works well. You need large acres because of very low commodity prices. So farmers have to farm more acres and, um, and farm them harder, uh, more work for them, in order to be able to continue sustainable, economically sustainable farming. So we lose the crop, the wildflowers that used to live on fence lines as they're replaced with GE soy or other types of crops.
That's really the only possible downside that I see. And here again, this expert on this podcast is giving false information because he doesn't understand it enough in order to make good claims that are scientifically sound. The bee issues that are happening are happening largely because of the varroa mite, but it's not a single component. There are other studies that have indicated the presence of low levels of neonicotinoids, which are seed treatments, um, in hives and could be contributing to the decline of, of bees in general. There are others who say bees are doing just fine. But all of these things are important for us to keep an eye on and important to monitor and watch. And we do. It's something that many scientists are looking at. And if there is something, we'll know. But we have zero evidence, absolutely zero, that GE crops are related to anything to do with bees, other than you have more pollinators and more diversity around fields where GE crops are used because you don't fly over a spray plane full of chemistry. So this is um, a, uh, and that work's been very well established as well. Okay, here we go, back to the, back to, uh, Back to thinking, debunking, and listening. Now, environmental concerns, um, there's a couple of things we can talk about. Number one, all those extra uh, pesticides that has been applied, the increased pesticide and the increased herbicide that has been applied, that is going to end up in our water systems. That yes, is going to end up in it will our, run off. It will affect the amphibians. That's the number one susceptible species for this increased amount of herbicides and pesticides that's been used. So that's been impact our whole ecological impact. And uh, I used to say in, in Florida, Ichitekne Springs that I used to go and swim when I was young, it was, it was clean and pristine and you can see through the springs itself. Now it's you know, heavily um, polluted. Right. And the pollution comes from numerous factors, not only application of fertilizers, but also these excessive pesticides and herbicides that's been applied end up in our deep aquifer systems. It's a very sad sight to see when something so beautiful is affected so dramatically. Yeah, so that's the environmental concerns. Okay, where to start? Okay, so first he says that there are pesticides in, uh, you know, agricultural chemistry in the water. And, uh, you know, to say that really suggests that farmers are not doing this correctly. Farmers don't want to spend money on pesticides. And if you do, you don't want to dump them in the water. You apply them to the plants and the, the fields where they're relevant. And you have to have special um, training and understanding of what these are in order to apply them near water. And that's to minimize water impacts. And when you look at um, the amounts that are found in water, they're vanishingly small. But they're present because we can detect things that are there on the edge of nothing. We talk about that a lot here on the podcast. His best evidence is a personal anecdote of the place that he used to swim as a kid a place I know pretty well. It's a beautiful place. But the big problem in that water system, in that spring system, is a lower volume of water. And that comes from several factors, mostly the growth of populations. That the flow through that particular spring system is 25% lower than it used to be. And that's a significant contributor. And certainly, you know, residential, um, uh, the building of homes and roads and septic tanks and all the other human impacts absolutely impacts these beautiful spring systems that we're trying to preserve here in north central Florida. But it's not evidence against genetic engineering because there's no genetic 
engineered crops grown in these areas. Maybe a tiny bit of corn, a tiny bit of cotton, and none that I can picture around the Ichitakni Springs system. So again, an expert who really doesn't know much about the uh, topic that he's trying to convince us of. Here we go. The next one is more on ethical concerns. You know, nature used to be doing selective process selection. And then at some point in the time, human beings were sophisticated and started to doing breeding of crops. That was fine. But what happens in, in ethical concern is now we are becoming guard in taking a genetic material from something else and putting into into something else and creating a new crop. So that that's going to have us, when we become guard of ourselves. Do you think that the differences between what we used to do to, for example, create wheat or whatever, to what we're doing now is that we're mixing species. You think that's where the line gets crossed? No, mixing species is, is a different thing. Um, but even for improving the existing varieties, you know, you are now manipulating the genetic code mm -hmm. and introducing things that is never supposed to be in nature right. in the first place. And nature has its own selection process. So that is a moral and ethical question: Is GMO is the right thing to do? So it's it's you know it's a, it's an ethical question then mm -hmm. more than anything else. I will agree that it is an ethical question, but an ethical question that should we use the best technology to solve a problem if we can. And whereas his take is really, it's an ethical question about, you know, should we be using a gene from one organism to another? And again, I'll go back to diabetes. Should we be growing a human gene in bacteria? Should we be uh, taking a gene from nature you know, what she says, these things don't happen in nature, but should we take a gene from nature, like Bt, uh, the delta endotoxin gene from the Bt bacterium, and move that to uh, corn or cotton to use less insecticide? I think so. And so the ethics here certainly are on the side of use technology to help people. Let's continue. And sometimes... What also happens is there is a genuine concerns. Would this species end up being a super weed, a weed that is very difficult to eradicate? Mm. Right. Um, you know, these crops end up, they express themselves and they end up being a variety that is very difficult to get it off and become a weed. For example, the, there was a genetically modified eucalyptus that was introduced for soil erosion. It ended up being a weed in the U.S. Mm. So oh. that, has been, that has been cases like that that has happened before. Oh, wrong again, experts. So these experts, right, self-appointed experts, don't know that eucalyptus was never approved in the U.S., genetically engineered eucalyptus, for soil erosion or for any purpose. It was made by a place called Futuragene in Brazil and was created for more biomass production. More biomass production means more fuel available from trees and more carbon sequestration from the atmosphere. It's renewable fuel that sequesters carbon. So this is an environmental positive. Uh, eucalyptus itself is a rather invasive tree and is used very sparingly, but is limited in its range in northern temperate climates because of cold uh, cold non-hardiness, right? The tree dies in the cold. So not a whole lot to worry about there. But it, it shows again that the experts on this podcast are hardly experts. And, and socioeconomic concerns also is impacting on GMO. To give an example, if you cannot store GMO seeds, the company that 
produces the GMO is ultimately responsible for the patent ship and, and they own the rights to hold that seed. So you have to buy from every year. As a farmer, if you look prehistorically, farmers try to save seeds. Absolutely. In some cases, and you can't save seeds anymore and you have to rely on them. Whoever controls the seed controls the power. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Not quite and not exactly. <laughs> this is amazing to me. So farmers do not always save seeds, especially large agronomic farmers that rely on hybrids. They use hybrids because of their better performance, especially in areas like corn, where the F1 hybrid, if you were to save the seeds, GMO or not, would give you offspring that did not necessarily resemble the parent. The hybrids bring uniformity, and that's been done since 1927. Big companies that make seeds make seeds because preparing seeds for farmers to get maximum germination and early growth is different than saving seeds for food or saving a food product. It requires special conditions and special treatment and, and ways that you fertilize and care for the plants. It's all a little bit different, which is why farmers are happy to pay someone else to do it. Every year you buy new seeds you, and in the case of genetic engineering, you get the extra technology as part of that package. So farmers, for, since, I don't know, 1920s, have been buying hybrid seeds on an annual basis. And now have buying those seeds with genetic engineering, with an extra trait that helps them farm more sustainably. And I think that's also another aspect. It's driven by profit or business structure rather than... Um, helping as they claim. And that's something that's always gotten me is that they always try to use the example of uh, golden rice, I think. Yes. Or uh, re most recently the orange in Florida was affected by a Chinese bug or pesticides or some form where it affected. And, you know, they were trying to rectify that by genetically modifying it with spinach, if I remember correctly. To me, it becomes... If you're driven by profit when you're messing with nature, it's a bad problem. I think so. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's always the case. Mother Nature always tells us who is superior. Right. And always. human beings always try to uh, control nature, but eventually at this point of the time, Mother Nature wins. They say on their natural computer-driven podcast and their natural <laughs> – um, you know, all these folks – some of them are CEOs of companies, and those companies must make profits or they close their doors. So they, too, have a profit motive in their business. It's amazing that they come on as self-appointed experts saying that profits are bad and profits are, profits are evil for companies to do, yet they run companies that obviously must profit. I also don't like the continual appeal to nature. You know, nature, we push back against it, as humans with technology to improve the human condition, especially for the disadvantaged. And it bothers me to hear that constant selective application of uh, genetic engineering and food bad, um, but other uses of technology are perfectly fine. That's always a, a tremendous hypocrisy in this discussion. And, and do you think it might be a problem that we can't reverse it back to how it was? Um, it's totally possible. Possible, but it takes it takes a good amount of education. It takes a good amount of research. It takes it takes 
cooperations and agreement between all the stakeholders involved in the process. So it's a long process. Yeah, yeah I think we need to have more information like these kind of being broadcast to the general consumers and so they understand the, the real impact, you know, because a lot of these are not direct impact. Um, the things that, uh, that cause, I mean, I guess GMO is causing the imbalance of the variety of species and things like that. Uh, that's something that people don't, um, don't necessarily feel it till it's too late. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, so I think by talking about it, it will bring more awareness of the consumers and, and that's kind of, the, you know, what we're trying to do here. What they're trying to do here. False information being spread by self-proclaimed experts to an audience that is excited to hear what they would offer. And what is the audience for this podcast, their podcast, heard that genetic engineering is an evil practice that's like snake venom? This is the level of science that they bring. And it's really sad because it misinforms. It does exactly the opposite of what he says they're trying to do. i give another example from another industry, tobacco. We, it took 30 years for us people, at least 30, 40 years, to understand tobacco is injurious to health. Right. So GMOs may fall under that category. Yes, and, and when money's involved, generally gets delayed certain subjects, <laughs> whether it's healthy or bad for us. Well, I think to summarize, um, I believe, this is my personal opinion, given my expertise in this area, that GMOs is not good. Uh, it has human implications. It has implication on animals. It has an implication on environmental issues. It has implication on socioeconomic issues. And above all, more and more important, it has moral and ethical questioning. Absolutely. You have more than one issue, so how can that be better? Right, exactly. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Some things we need to just leave alone the way nature intends. And I hope that someday... If she ever, God forbid, has uh, a heart attack or sort of some sort of problem, that the physician who is attending to her asks the question, do you want me to just let this go the way nature is intended? Or should I let technology intervene? I have a funny feeling that she'll be very excited to accept the technology at the time when it's her life on the line. Yet when it's the life on the line of millions of people around the world that could benefit from crop technologies, she's willing to deny that to them. The other person on this discussion says that it's like tobacco. We didn't know for 30 years. Yes, we did. We knew back in the 1800s that tobacco led to cancer, that it led to lung ailments, it led to lung problems. This was no surprise. And yes, why it was corrupted by companies and profits. There were many independent scientists that blew the whistle and could document the problems extremely clearly. It was not a surprise to science. Yep. Yes, and how you can do your part at home is help share this podcast. More people that know, the better we can educate. Perhaps we can change it a little bit by little, but I think at least sharing this podcast can help at least uh, bring understanding on the subject to your friends. Absolutely. And for any of you listeners that have any questions, you can definitely feel free to reach out to us. Feel free to send us an email. We'll be glad to answer any of your questions. Now think about this. I've spent about the last hour point by point 
refuting every single claim they've made as false. Yet now they're saying this is a role to educate and a place for them to share good information, share it with others. This is misinformation and disinformation. All right. Thanks, Al. Yeah. All right. So to all of my guests today, I thank you so much for joining. And we really appreciate all the input you've given us and all the information on this topic. And I hope that uh, you guys tune in for our next episode where we get a little deeper into this and start discussing the labeling of GMO. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. (laughs) But it really does show that this needs to be an honest conversation. That when you have this kind of misinformation, which is being broadcast through podcasts, to willing audiences that are seeking it out, it needs clarification. And the sad part is I did reach out to this podcast and ask, could I be a guest and could I help clarify some of these issues? I didn't even get the courtesy of a return email. It's about insulating the silo from good information and allowing people who claim to be experts in to have a free range to make up false information, as we've shown point by point. Now again, my goal here was not to throw individuals under the bus. This was not about personal differences with individuals in this podcast. It was about throwing concepts under the bus and pointing out to you as a listener how misinformation around this topic spreads and how misinformation around this topic impedes the acceptance of good technology that can help people and can help the planet. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. 
Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.